0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. couples therapist, author of Love Between Equals, and the creator of Real Dialogue, a skillful practice that uses a mindful approach to communication that lowers the sense of emotional threat that often arises in conflict situations, allowing us more spaciousness to work creatively with conflict and problems in our relationships, which is also a part of her dialogue therapy practice that she does with her couples clients.
1: You know, one thing that you may not know is that working with couples in therapy is is the most difficult work that therapists do. And, um, you know, even with dialogue therapy, which is very structured, it's emotionally really exhausting. And that's because people are stuck in this thing called projective identification with their partners more than with any anybody else in the world. And... It's you know it's bad enough with a sibling or an adult an adult child and a parent, but with partners, it's just a territory that is so ripe for dehumanizing. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, I, I have many people I see in therapy that are such good people, and I want so much for them to work things out because I can see how they're stuck, and I know it's workable. But uh, it's very hard to uh, bring them through. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, nothing hijacks us like those emotional triggers, like these things that just suck us back into our tantrumy childhood.
1: Right. Exactly. And you know, part of the problem is that we attribute these motivations and intentions to our partner in a way that we feel confident about and like it's just amazing how far off people are but they continue on with it <laughs> and it's just hard as a therapist because mostly what i want to say is just stop that just stop it
0: <laughs> right you have two two people who are <laughs> taking everything completely personally and assuming that the other person is doing whatever they're doing deliberately to affect them to harm them to threaten them yeah. to undermine them when these are just stories that are attached to our our old traumas and the feeling and emotions that are coming up in this moment that most resonate with with that old stuff and unless something happens to interrupt the cycle we just go off on these. And almost endless vicious cycles.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You've said it very well. That's exactly it. And there's a kind of tragedy in it for me right now because, I mean, I'm sort of assuming we're in the interview here, but, you know, that uh, I see so much estrangement in North American families. You know, I see how people become estranged, of course, you know, separate as spouses, but then that parent may estrange that child, from the other spouse, because those attributions of the spouse's harmfulness or intentionality continue even after the divorce. And uh, consequently, it's going to be very difficult for North Americans to go forward with generations. People aren't going to have, you know, the next generation, the last generation, because it's so fragmented. And even now, I feel that there's very little recognition of the importance of the history of a family, of generations working together, of people accommodating the other person and the other person's limitations and habits and so on, that there's a lot of emphasis on I need to do what feels good for me, or it even sounds like, you know, my body can't take this. You know, my body has to have it my way. And, you know, I just want to say to people, come on, people, stop this. (laughs) I believe it's possible for humans to love each other, negotiate things, and still, you know, have a big space between them. Like, we, we we don't really know the other person's deep suffering. They have to wrestle with that. But we can be respectful of it. We can be kind about it you know if we really want to be equals then we have to act in a more grown up way it it can't be you know the parent child relationship and in the past you know the war between the sexes there was usually usually the the women were in charge inside of the house and the men were in charge on the outside of the house and each party was subjugated for various things and they didn't feel like friends you know they were operating more like, to some extent, like Cold War enemies, or at the most, perhaps, uh, comrades or colleagues or something, you know, over time, or business partners. And then, but, you know, and then at least the generations did kind of survive, and people had family history. They had their grandparents and their aunts and uncles. And so, you know, there, even if there was this Cold War feeling to it, there was continuity. Now we've got this other thing that, you know, we're we're asking for something very different from our close relationships. We really are asking for intimacy and, you know, somebody who can witness us to see us and hear us and feel us. But in order to get that, we have to do some growing up. You know, we have to do some accommodating to the other person so that they can be seen and heard and felt also. And That requires a whole new level of mindfulness and insight about ourselves, working with ourselves, being able to recognize that everybody has limitations, everybody has failures, everybody has habits, everybody has a family of origin, everyone has wounds, just without exception.
0: And of course, we have to learn completely new communication skills.
1: Yep, yep. Because the old ones, you know, and here's the number one thing that I would say about the old ways they often would begin with you or we. You know, we do this, or we need more of this, or we never go here or there, or you always say this, or you never say that, or you always fail to do this. Neither of those pronouns should be used at all. It should be I and then a question How about you? You know, I cannot give you a royal we. (laughs) Like, we should be kind. We should be compassionate. No. If you want to be kind, I would like to be kind with you. I would like to be compassionate with you. How about you? You know, the other person might say, I've never heard of those words. So it's like being able to speak for yourself is more than using an I statement. It's recognizing your own subjectivity, that you have flaws in your memory, that you have your own preferences, desires, you have your own opinions, you have your own data, and all of those things are just yours. They're not the other person's. So that you take responsibility for this is the way I read the data, you know. I don't like these places, how about you? Do you like these places? I would like to do this. I would like to work from home. I don't wanna go home at the end of the week. How about you? Instead of we, you know. So just from that very first thing of speaking about we, when you're in a couple, if you stop that today, And you begin to discipline yourself to really say, I. And that allows you also to start to see what you do want and what your desires are and what your shortcomings and fears are and so on. Just doing that is a huge
0: step forward.
1: But it's difficult for people to do it, you know.
0: And it's highly complex because there's a lot of very different dynamics entangled in all of this along with the skillful use of communication.
1: Absolutely, you're absolutely right. The the entanglement of these emotional dynamics is honestly, from my point of view as a long-term couples therapist, it's beyond my imagination. I mean, what I find in the ways that people are relating to a partner is often beyond anything. I could imagine from the point of view of how the other person needs to be blamed, you know, kind of relentlessly, and how the other person is being viewed as a bad person, bad motivations, or as even an enemy, someone I have to protect myself against. Over a long period of time, the person who's doing the viewing feels like that's reality. You know, like... I don't feel safe here. And so I need to address that. And it's because of you that I don't feel safe, of course, you know.
0: <laughs> because you did this to me, you said that and and we're not owning the effect that it triggered in us. We're just blaming them for triggering us.
1: Well, we're trying to get the other person's behavior kind of trained up to what we want, you know, and that's kind of like treating the other person like an animal. You know, it's like Okay, I want you to do this. Now, now keep that in mind, because I know exactly what the outcome is that I'm looking for. Well, you know, even when I'm dealing with my dog, I have a range of accommodations I make, and I make those accommodations to her right now because she's old and she's sort of lame. She's grumpier than she used to be. She'll run after dogs that she never did before. But I don't turn on her because I know that she's in some pain. Now, if you treated your partner like that, when your partner comes home tired and you say, you know, I'd like to do this. Or, you know, could you make dinner? And the partner says, wait a minute, I'm too tired for that. You'd go, oh, okay, you know. Here's my partner who has been working and driving and so I'll take that. I'll take that into account. The person is tired. Okay. So what can we do now that that I have one tired person and one person who doesn't want to make dinner? How can we work that out? And so often we do make these accommodations for our pets or our children. But not for our partners, because again, that attribution of intentionality to the other person and the desire to train that person to be what we want them to be, they're going to be helpful or they're going to do their part or they're going to, you know, answer in the way we want them to answer these questions.
0: And it's very interesting because in your book, you write about how we grow up learning to manipulate and control our parents in order to get love and to get our basic needs met. And this begins pre-verbally. And then, yes. of course, it gets established at that pre-verbal level, and then it, it translates out into the rest of our adult life until we have the intention to do the kind of deep self-inquiry to expose those patterns and discover how they don't work for us anymore.
1: Yes, again, you've said it perfectly. You know, all of us have this early dependency from the time we're in the womb until we're 18 months to two years old. We don't have language, culture, any of those conceptualizations available to us, but we have emotional communication and we're able to bring others under our control because it's a life or death. Situation for us, our needs have to be met, particularly when we're very young. You know, if we're not cared for in certain interpersonal ways, not just you know getting our needs met for food or for cleaning up or whatever, we need also to be have people interested in us, looking at our faces, talking to us. You know, even though we don't understand the language, we know our mother's voice in her uterine from four months. We discern it, so we're wanting to hear that voice you know, when we come out, we prefer that voice to other sounds, even when we're in the womb. And then we come out, we're very interested in that voice. So we're, we're doing all sorts of communicating with our parents or in particularly the mother. And we're having to accommodate that person's emotional difficulties and emotional needs in order to keep their attention, in order to get our needs met. And we become kind of experts at Bringing the other person under our control emotionally, or, you could say, capturing the other person emotionally. And then when we get words and we get self-consciousness and we get a sense of our tribe and our culture and so on, we use those emotional skills in a whole new way that you know, continues to be more and more nuanced. But it never goes away that we drop our desire. To control others emotionally, or I sometimes call it like kidnapping others, but it's really more kind of bringing them into our own emotional net so we can get our needs met. And of course, we do that in lots of different ways because it depends on our own uh, original training. So, you know, some of us are aggressive, some passive aggressive. Some are more withdrawing. Some are avoidant. Some are, you know, if you have like a secure attachment bond, maybe you're more confident. But all of those emotional styles are built in to the adult. And the adult may not know any of this at all and not know how emotionally compelling they are when they're in a particular mood or they have a particular need you know, that they, that they are really well organized to bring it about. And so once you do learn about this and once you learn about your own emotional habits, what we call in the dialogue therapy training, you know, the snow globe of your subjectivity, uh, you start to realize that your responsibility for feeling safe is to work with yourself. That you work with yourself, you know what your own internal talk is, you know, your mental images, you know, the habits that go with your emotions, you know, the habits that go with your body sensations, and you work with those. Now, of course, if you're in a truly dangerous situation, and you know how to work with yourself, then you're going to protect yourself from that danger by leaving or fighting or whatever. But if you're not in a really dangerous situation but you are feeling unsafe then the best way to get safe is to learn how to get equanimity or a gentle matter-of-fact awareness of your own subjectivity so you can work with it you know so you can make enough space for yourself and the other person and you can speak for yourself listen to the other person Remain curious, negotiate back and forth. Then you have real safety because you know how to take yourself around and work with yourself in relation to others. And to some extent, nothing really stymies you because you know how to work with yourself. You know how to get back on your own surfboard. You know how to work with your own snow globe. Other people don't have to behave in a certain way for you to feel. Okay,
0: So you're saying that even when your partner says something or does something that triggers you, that you have enough spacious quality of mindfulness that you can see that, well, that isn't necessarily what I think it is. And I'm just going to pause and not react to it and see what what happens next kind of a thing.
1: Exactly. So let's say, I mean, you and I have a lot of agreement about a lot of things. As I'm listening to you, you have a way of speaking that is completely congruent with the way I see things. As far as I can tell, I mean, I'm sure if we knew each other, (laughs) it wouldn't be completely congruent. So my sense of mindfulness, of what we call mindfulness, which is a word that gets tossed around a lot, you know, in in this kind of 21st century way. It seems like everybody's practicing mindfulness, but I don't find that there are that many more people with a lot of skills. But to me, it's the combination of the ability to concentrate, to track things moment to moment. You track what you're hearing, you track what you're seeing, track what you're feeling, as well as being able to accept your experience in the sense of, you're not pushing and pulling on it. You're not pushing it away. You're not grasping it and pulling it in. You're, you're able to take this attitude that's called equanimity in um, formal Buddhist contexts. And it's really this ability to kind of surf on the ups and the downs of life, the expansions and the contractions, the wonderful, joyful moments and the terrible, painful moments of which there are always more painful, negative moments in life than wonderful, joyful ones. For a variety of reasons, human beings are designed to notice and to remember the negative much more than the positive, And to discriminate and discern negative emotions more than positive ones. So we're kind of designed to have a negative compass needle, you know, that goes towards the negative naturally. And so once you're able to work with all that, you're able to kind of surf moment to moment to moment and you kind of keep your balance with the equanimity. Oh, so right now my partner is saying these things that I feel are pretty insulting. I mean, I am really feeling upset. Now what do I want to do about that at this moment? You know, Do I want to just feel my feelings? Because you should always feel your feelings, you know. Don't not feel them. But maybe I don't want to express them. Maybe I don't want to get into that particular dance right now. Maybe it's, you know, I'd like to go to dinner. (laughs) Yeah,
0: but one of the things that usually happens when somebody says something that feels insulting or hurtful is instead of having the presence of mind to pause and to question well do i do i want to go through that door kind of with an awareness of of understanding that there goes the whole evening how we're going to have to work this out or right. or maybe just get into a vicious cycle together that we don't work out until maybe the next day or or the next therapy session that when we get triggered old stories like default stories usually come up with them that have kind of become attached at the hip and so we also have to see through those as well as as the emotions like there's an interesting thing that that you point out in the book that the raw the initial raw emotion usually only lasts about 30 seconds right but if we don't recognize that we're having that that is just a raw emotion that it's just energy that's like charging through our body I mean it's a it's like a powerful electrical charge if we don't recognize that then and often we we don't reckon I mean we're not trained to feel that in our bodies to recognize that so instead we don't realize what's happening to us until the story appears and tells us that either we're in danger or somebody has insulted us usually again well yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. No, you're
1: absolutely, again, you're, you're saying this completely, precisely and accurately. The actual perception of human emotion at the longest is 60 seconds. And that's the emotion of shame or humiliation, which is one of the most difficult and painful emotions that we experience. And so it arises and passes away if it's allowed to do that pretty rapidly. So why do people feel it for days? Well, they begin to go into that triggered narrative. Oh, this means, or what if this means, or he always, or she always, or this is the same old thing. I know exactly what this is. And going into the narrative then, again, if we're not familiar with our own snow globe and we don't know our narratives, we can get completely lost it becomes almost a mythology of the mind in which we believe we know exactly what is going on but what our mythology is is it's about our early emotional experiences and those experiences do not have to repeat for your entire life they will repeat if you act them out and you direct your internal theater So that every time you get close to somebody, you eventually scream and yell at them, or you eventually withdraw from them, or you eventually find them to be inadequate. You know, there are are many kinds of internal theaters, but whatever yours is, you can direct all of the others in your life, but especially the close others, into the play. And they don't know that they're in your movie or your play because they have their own going and they're trying to, you know, kind of get their thing played out. So it's it's sort of remarkable. Again, for a long period of time, there was a lot of theory about people wanting to repair their wounds. And so they got involved with somebody who was just like mother, father, an older sibling And they were kind of doing what Freud called a repetition compulsion, you know, in order to learn from that trauma. And eventually, you know, they'd see it, they'd get it. But even Freud saw that they don't get it eventually, just keep doing it over and over and over again. He couldn't figure out, why do people do this? And now we know, For Many reasons from cognitive science and so on that we are so profoundly unconscious, like 99% unconscious, and we just get captured in these mythologies. But we then direct others to do the internal theater that we know how to play. And then we can feel like, you know, others are always disappointing us, others are always abandoning us, others are always alienating us because we're directing that theater and it's happening repeatedly, repeatedly, but we don't know why, you know? It's like, how can I stop choosing a person who's an addict? Well, you gotta figure out what's happening in your snow globe. I mean, you know, you may not be really choosing an addict. You may be choosing a person who seems kind of childlike and delightful.
0: Or somebody that reminds you of some aspect of what you grew up with, that even though it was traumatizing and and miserable, it still has that kind of strange sense of safety that comes with familiarity?
1: Yes, exactly. Well, people even talk about, and I, I think it's a kind of worthy term, a trauma bond, you know, that we can bond with someone who's had the same kind of trauma that we've had because, oh, I get that, you know. I had a mother like that. I had a father like that. I get that. And then we're really, we're really poised to play out internal theaters that seem to confirm each other. And, you know, what really makes people completely crazy, which of course we see all the time in couples therapy, is that each person in the couple seems to be having the exact same experience of rejection or the exact same experience of being dismissed or scorned or being overwhelmed or so we call it uh in dialogue therapy a a hall of mirrors kind Mm. of setup you know you hear the two people talking and it's almost like they're they're using the same words to describe what the other person is doing to them so you have no idea who's doing what to whom because each person is saying pretty much the same thing sounds like they both got the same script but actually, they, they're in different movies, but the scripts fit well enough that they're saying the same kinds of things about their you know, hurt and wound and harm from the other. And then you've got other kinds of projective identifications like the puppeteer and the puppet, or the all or nothing. You know, only one person is going to be a winner here. The other one's going to lose. And of course, both people feel like they're going to be the loser, and the other one is going to be the winner. So these internal theaters that go back to our early emotional conditioning, they are connected to what Carl Jung called archetypes. And those archetypes we find represented in mythologies. And uh, one reason why people can seem to be in the same movie when they're in different movies is that they're they're playing on the same archetypal themes because, you know, people are in many ways, let's say hardwired, or I don't like that word, but designed in ways to, you know, play out only a handful of possible human possibilities. So
0: so for example, would you consider the victim a kind of archetype in this situation?
1: Well, I would say it's the victim perpetrator.
0: Yeah you have to have the two to tango. But, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that dynamic. So that's what you mean in this context by archetypes?
1: Well, you know, the victim perpetrator is more like what I would call like a scheme or a format because it can be played out in a mother-child way, in a father-child way, in a sibling way. It can be played out in terms of You know, early trauma like sexual abuse, physical abuse, so that the content of the roles of the victim and the perpetrator get played out in terms of archetypal themes. Let me give you an example of something that I think is a little hard to suss out, but not uncommon that a child who feels like, let's just call it the mother, you know, it could be the father or another caretaker, but it has to be a caretaker that is present quite a lot, you know, in that first year, first, second year, that the mother has a kind of negative view of this child. In other words, let's say the mother sees her own shortcomings in this child. This child needs to be, you know, this child is always overwhelmed. This child needs to be quieted down. This child's motivations are bad. This child doesn't love me. This child rejects me and so on. So this mother is engaged with this child that she perceives in a negative way. And then the child has to accommodate to that in order to survive. So the child may, let's say, take on the experience of I caused my mother pain. I caused my mother difficulty. And so I'm going to have to prove to my mother that I'm a good person. So as that child grows up, that child may become an entertainer, a clown, to get the mother to laugh, may become a really good student, very successful, because trying to prove to the mother, I really am good after all. Or the child could go in the other direction and just feel like the bad seed. You know, I'm the one that she's always ashamed of no matter what I do. I can't ever get her validation, approbation, or whatever. So that person grows up. Let's just take it as the dynamic of I am going to prove to you that I am really worthwhile and lovable, even though I assume and I've experienced that you'll never validate it. And so then you get into a relationship, and you may be very, at the beginning, particularly, you know, very charming, very even seductive very fascinating because let's say you've, you've learned how to present this fascinating picture of your achievements, of your abilities. Maybe you're, you're funny with that. So the other person is like, wow, this is an amazing person, you know, really great person. Oh, you're really great. You know, I love you, or I think you're wonderful for these reasons. And so then in the falling in love part, this grown up person who has what we would call from a Jungian vocabulary, a negative mother complex, even though, let's just say she, may not have a negative picture of her mother. There's a dynamic there where her mother has treated her negatively and she's never been able to prove herself to her mother. So now she's, she's in this relationship Wonderful, we're getting going. She's feeling great because this person just thinks she's terrific, et cetera, et cetera. As things start to unfold and there are conflicts and there's disappointment, this child of the negative mother complex is going to look for reassurances from the other person. You know, was I really that bad at that? You know, tell me essentially how fascinating I am. You know, oh, could you please let me know? That you still love me. You know, I wasn't sure last night when you turned your back to me whether that was because I'd done something wrong. In any case, this excessive need for reassurance starts to become annoying. And the other person starts to feel like no matter what I do, this partner never feels secure and confident in my love. I can tell her how wonderful, beautiful, build her houses buy her things, but she's, she's like a black hole. No matter how much I put in there, she never feels confident that I really love her. So this scenario that I'm telling you is very difficult to figure out because the underlying, let's say, theater or drama is so unknown to the individual who's carrying it and this individual has the experience like, I'm always doing something wrong, and nobody ends up loving me in the long run. But what that individual is doing wrong will escape her attention, you know, that she never feels confident of the other person's love. And the other person has to keep proving it over and over again because she never felt confident of her mother's love. And she didn't know that her mother was doing this. Because she was trying so hard to get that confidence and validation that that's where all of her emotional attention went. So I'm, you know, I'm giving you a scenario that's kind of complicated, but honestly, not that rare. And so the, you know, on the conscious side, the partner can feel like I'm exhausted You know, I tell her in every possible way how incredibly wonderful she is. She never seems to believe it or take it on. She always needs more. I can't reassure her more. I'd spend twenty-four-seven, you know, just reassuring her. I have to do other things. And then the receiver of that sort of scenario says, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I really try in every way I know to be interesting, to be good, to show up, to do everything right. But I'm always getting this criticism. So, you know, I'm only really telling you one side of the internal theater, which is the side of the mm-hmm. person who has this negative mother complex.
0: Who's basically locked in her own, you call it a snow globe, but it's yeah. like we're all locked into our own narratives of the world as, yes. we, as we perceive them. And there's that old saying that we don't see the world the way it is. We see the world as we are. That's
1: exactly right. Basically, the reason I call it a snow globe is because, you know, our subjectivity is complex. It's not like we're just inside this body walking around with a brain and we're generating, you know, ideas about the world that is out there. It is that we're all having perceptions, which include seeing something that we call the world out there. Also seeing something in our mind's eye that we sometimes confuse with a world out there, like, oh, you look angry. Are you angry at me? Well, hey, it's in your mind's eye. It's not the other person's face. You're seeing the other person's face through your mind's eye. And so the seeing complicated by our own emotional states, we see through this glass darkly. Hearing, very complicated, you know, because we're talking to ourselves all the time and we're posing things to ourselves about how things are, about the other person's motivation, about our own motivation, what's going on right now. The other person's talking to us can hardly get through the din of our self-talk often. And so, you know, when we so-called listen to somebody else talk, often we're not listening, we're listening to our own self-talk. So hearing, complicated, complicated perception, even though we believe we're sitting there listening, and then our feelings really even more complicated because that early emotional training that we had so we have this tendency to be drawn in this direction or that direction and then also we have the other part of our feeling life is is our body sensations you know which includes pain and whether we're hungry or not and you know how we're feeling about the surrounding temperature etc so all of these things are going into our subjective experience of the way we're perceiving others and we assume that there's a world out there but there's not really we're creating it as we're moving along and you know maybe we can talk a little bit about why subjectivity for humans is so individual but it really is and so what what you can imagine is that the snow globe is like a movie that you were in and you totally believe your movie because you know that you heard it this way, you saw it that way. You know what it felt like on that day. But the fact is, none of those things is true. First of all, you don't really remember anything very accurately. Secondly, whatever you experienced that you saw and heard was colored by your lens. And so all along, you're caught very much in this space that is your space and it's very hard to know what others are feeling even though you believe you know it without asking them and that's why you know we do need to use our words and we need to use our words lightly and hold our ideas lightly and of course in those moments where we feel so emotionally harmed or insulted or trapped, in those moments, those are the moments when we very often want to nail things down with our words. You know, like, this is the way it is. I know what you're thinking. I've been through this, you know, for a thousand times with you. I don't trust you, and so on. So instead of using our words like, hey, I'm having this kind of experience, how about you? we do this other thing of kind of nailing down our own movie or directing our own internal theater, and then we're trapped in it again, you know? And then our lives seem to be like Groundhog Day. You know, they just go through the same scenario again and again and again, and we don't know why. And, of course, I hear people say this, especially about their couple relationships, many, many times. And, you know, that's not unusual, I mean, to have the other experience that you really found a friend in your couple relationship that you can work with and that you know how to talk to that friend because you make accommodations for the friend's personality and you also know your own personality, that's that's a bit rare.
0: Well, take certain ground rules like the community that you have kind of referred to the Buddhist community, there are certain, not so much ground rules, but there's the ground of of doing meditation and practicing mindfulness and self-reflection. And it takes a tremendous amount of work to develop that skill to the point where it can stand up against the workings of our amygdala and the way it hijacks our, our nervous system and sends us into the fight, flight or freeze response. I lived in a spiritual community many years ago where we actually learned all of these things. But in addition to that, we we also learned the, the psychological and emotional dynamics underlying it. And whenever we did any kind of communication stuff, which we did on a regular basis because it was so fruitful, we created a sacred space and we did some meditation to create a space within which we could maintain a level of mindfulness, knowing that we were gonna be engaging in communication. We called it karma cleaning, where everyone had the opportunity to share their emotional chart, you know, what had happened during that week with the other person, and how it made them feel and all those kinds of things. And we were very well trained to listen as well as to talk in first person and just to speak from our direct experience objectively. Mm -hmm. And it worked amazingly well. And in fact, it was a tremendous joy to engage in that process when things were laid out that way. But in our world, since leaving that community and being in relationships with other women, you encounter people who don't have that level of skill in being able to be self-reflective and to recognize the emotional and psychological dynamics that are underlying our emotional triggers. So then it kind of, well, in my case, it kind of undermined everything I had learned, realizing, oh, all of that goes out the window now. I'm dealing with I'm dealing I'm starting over from scratch with somebody because I have to relate to them from where they are.
1: So I'm curious about what was the community?
0: It was Eureka. Eureka? Yeah. A R I C A. And where was that? Well, there were two main communities in in the country. One was in New York City, and one was in San Diego, and I was part of the San Diego community. And there were about 150 people in that community. And we were all living in communal houses and sharing um, work, housework communally, and having house meetings where we, quote unquote, cleaned our karma with each other on a regular basis, because you know, things come up, our triggers. And of course, many of us were young and just starting out on this. So we, we didn't have a lot of experience under our belts. So things were always getting triggered, but we had this structure of working it out in a way that was very mindful and also very safe.
1: So uh, just again, another question about that, who started that or where
0: did that arise from? The guy's name was Oscar Achazo. He was from South America and he had actually traveled all over the world learning from spiritual masters from pretty much every tradition he could come across. And there was a lot of Buddhist practice in it, primarily Tibetan Buddhist, and there was Sufi work. There was even stuff from the Hellenic traditions. There was a lot of different kinds of work that he was integrating into all of this. Plus, it was also very rooted in Western psychology. It, it was basically a psycho spiritual path that we were doing. We were integrating our spiritual practice in the world.
1: And uh, what happened to the movement?
0: Um, it kind of fizzled out for the most part. I mean, it still exists, but most people, you know, after doing a 40-day training intensive, residential 40-day intensive, many of the people realized that they did not want to go back to their past life or back to the quote-unquote real world. So many people moved into these communities, and after several years of living in these communities, they realized, okay, it's time. It's now time to go out in the world and kind of grow up and put all of this into practice, as opposed to kind of like living in, An environment where it's almost like summer camp, where it's all very playful because everybody recognizes the rules of the game and they're able to see through all of that. So it's actually very easy in many ways. Although I have to say, from my own experience, I was still often burning in the fire of my own internal process because throughout all of this, you're dealing with your own internal stuff, and most of us have tons of that to work through, especially when we're young. And I was 18 when I moved into that community.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, it sounds like a kind of a solid structure for developing emotional skills in working with yourself and other people. And I think of Real Dialogue, which is really our bigger movement that we're trying to put together as a Let's say you say know, we're hoping it will be a worldwide kind of practice where people learn these fundamental skills. They look like they're communication skills, but they're really not. They're really skills for humanizing conflict, for keeping the conflict in a contained kind of framework so that people are not destroying their relationships or becoming destructive within a conversation to each other. So the thing that I would say about love between equals and the way I view the couple relationship, I see the couple relationship as a spiritual practice that does have certain rules of conduct. You know, kind of like you were saying, Arika had these rules of conduct that everybody agreed to so that you could remind somebody, you know, this isn't how we do it here. And if we have within a couple relationship certain kinds of rules of conduct plus the skill of real dialogue, then we can proceed pretty well together to have an ongoing commitment to remaining together through all of our aging and needs and changes and emotional upheavals and so on. And, uh, you know, in the book Love Between Equals, we call particularly these rules of conduct, we call them B attitudes, you know, that this is the way to be, but also uh, the three C's of, you know, commitment, containment, and constraint. And all of those three C's have aspects that any spiritual practice has. They require discipline. They require an acknowledgement of limitation And they require also the recognition that you're here for a short time. Nobody is without limits. You know, what has to be respected is the sense that we want to go on together and we're willing to act with emotional containment because of that. So I do see the couple relationship of the 21st century, if people want this love between equals, if they want equality, reciprocity, mutuality, if they want to be seen and heard and felt authentically, you know, if that's what they want, because a good portion of the world is not asking for this, you know, I mean.
0: Well, most people don't even know that it's possible.
1: Well, it's true. Most people don't know it's possible because it's not practiced, you know. It's like, unless you've met this particular way of being, which you yourself met in a spiritual community, and some people do need it in a spiritual community. Not to say also, I just want to be very clear, that Buddhist monasteries and Buddhist sanghas and so on, they have all the problems that anyone has. So they don't necessarily have the kind of discipline set up that Arika did. I think Arika maybe was small enough. It wasn't like, you know, hundreds of people living in a limited environment with limited resources like you get in a lot of Buddhist monasteries. But the thing that Buddhist communities do have is that they have discipline and they have a commitment to ethical conduct and they have a commitment to this method of generating wisdom, which is this transformation of emotional destructiveness into deep wisdom. So, you know, there are rules of conduct in Buddhist communities, and they may or may not be used by any individual. But in a couple relationship in the 21st century, if you want this equality, mutuality, and reciprocity, and if you want to be seen and heard and felt as an individual, and you would love to learn how to do that for your partner as well, then you will have to practice the three Cs and you will have to learn the skill of real dialogue. And in that situation where the two people want to do it, then it is, I would say, a workable contained situation. There are thousands of situations where there's only one person who wants to do it, can do it, is capable of doing it. And then what you have is you have an opportunity to do what I call cherishing the other person, but it's not true love. True love, and the way I'm talking about it, is this love on a two-way street where both people want to be equal, reciprocal. They want this partnership, and they're capable of doing it, and they want to learn the skills, and they want to practice it, and so on. Great. That will lead to something that I think has never, ever happened for marriage. Let me just say that.
0: Before we get into cherishment and one-way love, I would like for you to talk more about the difference between what you call love between equals and what that means, you know, the characteristics of that in relation to the way we learn about love and see it represented in our culture.
1: So, You know, there are a lot of ways to answer what you're talking about. But I'm going to say that our culture is pretty much a romance-soaked culture, let's say. You know, North American, Canadian, and even, you know, English. We love the sort of princess and the prince that go off happily ever after, that kind of story. And that story of romance begins in the West in the Middle Ages.
0: You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and
1: WGDH Hardwick, community radio. I listen when I'm naked. And it is not a story about marriage. I just want to be very clear about that. When it began, which is in the European Middle Ages, around the 12th century, there were these, you know, kind of love and sex manuals that were written. And the one of them that has survived is called The Romance of the Rose. And it was about, you know, there was a lot of knowledge about women's orgasms and about sexual swooning and all of the pleasures of sex that would be intoxicating and so on. And so this manual teaches people how to practice these things. Now, the people that are being taught are the aristocracy. You know, they're the privileged people that have leisure time, et cetera. These things were not written for the peasants who are tilling the fields because, you know, this hierarchy of needs that, you know, people may or may not know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, if your needs are kind of trapped at the level of, of safety and hunger and sleep and so on, you're not going to get to the, oh, let's swoon over our sexual intimacy. You know, you're going to have sex, but it's not going to be intimate, et cetera. So the, the Romance of the Rose basically said, there is somebody out there who is your soulmate, somebody who is the mirror image of you, but in a different body. And here's how you cultivate that and find it and so on. In your leisure time, outside of marriage, you look for these kinds of situations where you can swoon and you can spend hours together cultivating your orgasms and you can do these wonderful things like poetry and art and so on. And it is not part of marriage because marriage is a business relationship for raising children and holding on to land and wealth and so on. So romance starts out as a leisure activity for the very privileged. So you get to about, let's say, the 17th, 18th century, and human beings being what they are, They want more and more of it. So why can't we do this in marriage? You know, why can't we fall in love and do one of these swooning things? And then we'll make this contract for marriage and we'll be happy ever after. You know, so romance comes into marriage really around the 18th century. Then you unfortunately get the 19th century where the gender roles and stereotypes and hierarchy and everything, all of this moves into the marriage contract. All of this moves into society and there are all these roles and things are expected and you kind of forget about the female orgasm. Lots of things happen in the 19th century that are rigidifying, let's say. Then we, we move into the 20th century. Now we've got marriage kind of locked down into a nuclear family unit. And really it is like a contract to raise the children. The two people in the contract are kind of disposable, but they have to do the job of raising the children, but we allow them to fall in love as a way to choose each other. So in the 20th century, people in North America wanted to fall in love as a way to get into marriage with the idea, and believe me, this wasn't the original idea, that if you find the right person, you'll be happy ever after. That idea, honestly, I think should have been thrown away, but I guess it has its merits. But what happened then was people fell in love. They didn't have the skills. Not only did they have the nuclear marriage, but after World War II, women had to stop working. They had to go home, stay at home. The idea was that the biological mother is the best caretaker for her child. I just want to point out that that has never been the case in the whole history of parenting until mid 20th century on. Nobody else was ever asking the biological mother to be locked down with her child. But anyway, you know, be that as it may, it became part of the way we expected the nuclear family to be. And so falling in love led to, you know, essentially the cold war between the sexes because at the beginning, you fall in love through an idealizing projection. In other words, this person you know, looks like she's going to complete you. He's going to protect you. She's going to entertain you. They are going to give you wonderful sex. They are going to be what you need. They are going to be because they're like you, because they're soulmates, because blah, blah, blah. So the falling in love thing, Sets up the other person to be an ideal. It's a fanciful, if not psychotic, delusion about a perfect person. Now, the other person must fail all of that because they're regular people. They're just ordinary people. But when they fail, depending on the circumstances, like, say, before about the 1960s, people got married before they had a lot of sex. And so the failure of the idealization, they were already married. So they were already kind of stuck together and they had to do a certain amount of growing and developing, even though they felt betrayed by the other person. The other person wasn't what they wanted. It wasn't what they expected. You get to the later part of the 20th century and divorce is prevalent. And you can get out almost as easily as you get in. And so then you can do this serial kind of falling in love thing. And so you just kind of hop around or you, you know, even now you have, can have multiple partners and so on. So you don't have to do the commitment anymore. You fall in love. Oh, it's ideal and wonderful. Oh, this person turns out not to be ideal and wonderful. Well, you could leave or you can add another person or whatever. And so this practice that I'm going to call true love was not a practice that anybody was trying to do ever in a marriage or in a committed relationship until just recently. You know, it's really just recently at the beginning of like this century that people wanted to be genuine individuals together, could be partners, they could be witnesses to each other, they could know each other, they could see and hear and feel each other accurately. And they could work out their negotiations, solve their problems, and so on as equals. This is an entirely new thing, and we believe that it should begin by falling in love. You know, this shouldn't be an arranged situation where our elders pick out somebody who's a good match. This should be a situation where we fall in love based on sensual needs, our our perceptions of this is the exactly right person for me, and then. We get into this relationship, which now, with all the demands for the equality, the reciprocity, and it could be anybody of any gender, of any background, of any tribe, and the person is supposed to hear us accurately, see us accurately, and so on. With all of these demands on the other person, when the idealization fails, the other person falls into often the black hole of the emotional wounds of the partner and becomes the re-wounder based on those unknown early emotional themes. So the path of true love, the way that I look at it, is the path from this idealization falling in love through the disillusionment, of recognizing this is a limited person who has wounds, who's vulnerable, who has failures, who may have addictions, who has lots of things you hadn't expected, but you're gonna stick with this person because whatever the because is, because this is your person, because you know it's your friend, because you're tired of wandering around in the desert or whatever, you're gonna stick with this person and so you're gonna start to practice this commitment Containment, constraint, with this one person who is a whole world that is different from yours. And you're going to be interested and curious, even though you feel insulted and enraged and dismissed and whatever. You're going to come back and you're going to say, You know, I'm having this experience. I have these needs. I remember it this way. How about you? So, If you're able to do that in a two way configuration where both people are engaged in this, this becomes a spiritual adventure that offers really pretty much anything that any spiritual path can offer. If you can practice it with this equanimity, mindfulness, with this kindness and compassion, recognizing that your partner is unknown to you. Your partner is mysterious to you. Even though the partner may feel familiar, you're going to find something new each day because each day is a fresh moment. Each moment is a fresh moment. So if your partner repeats the same story, you'll be interested in it in a new way, in the new moment, instead of saying to yourself, I've heard that a hundred times. I don't need to hear that again. You'll recognize in this moment, it's something new. So, you know, there are just so many things to say, and and many of them are in love between equals about this path or this practice of love on a two-way street, what it requires, what it delivers. It can also be practiced with our adult children who are our equals. You know, once they attain the age of 25 and more, They have fully developed human brains and they should know how to run their own lives so they become equals. And so if it's possible with an adult child, it's got to go back and forth. The child also has to be interested in the parent. It's not just the parent being interested in the child. But the child has to say, I'm a grown up now. I'd like to get to know my parent. I don't really know this person. I don't know what happened to this person. In my early years, even, I don't know what was happening to them when I was suffering and doing all my stuff, you know. So there's this possibility between adult children and parents, between siblings, between good friends, and between life partners. The main way that the life partner thing is different is that those two people are going to have sex ongoing. They're going to have sexual relationship, which colors their partnership differently than the parent-child, or the sibling relationship. But the love on the two-way street is sort of the same. It's using this discipline of the three C's to recognize, I have a dedication to you because you are my person, and I'm on the path with you, and I will return to you. I will be interested in you. I will want to hear again. I will be curious, even though I may be infuriated even though maybe I stopped speaking to you for a few days, I will come back kindly and apologize. I'm sorry that I didn't let you know that I was going to go silent. I was hurting so much. What happened to you during this time? So, you know, I'm just giving you some sort of feeling for it. But this love on a true way street begins with falling in love. And romance is not the same thing as love. Romance is that intoxication. And if it goes both ways, like you're the fairest in the land and oh, you're the fairest in the land, you feel very uplifted by that romance. It feels like, wow, this is I've never really experienced this, but it's based on delusion. It's based on the idea that the other person is a perfect, a perfect mate for you. You know, so that's that's kind of we are we're captured by romance here. Other cultures are not. But that romance kind of, let's say, motivator or trigger or whatever has led us to the desire for equal relating, for getting to know each other, for becoming witnesses in a way that about half of the world does not even care about. You know, they're not interested in relating to their spouses this way or to their partners this way.
0: So this arises out of making a conscious choice. To engage on a on a mature level of love, it it kind of arises out of a maturation of our sense of what love becomes when we stay present with the disillusionment and all of the uh, emotional ups and downs that we go through with each other.
1: Right, and a recognition that love is not based on satisfying our desires. Love is based on dedication. It's based on really promising to remain interested. And so because sometimes, you know, as we age, our desires cannot be satisfied by our partner, but we're still dedicated. So love is not a feeling. And this actually, in The Road Not Taken, uh, what was his name? Scott Peck, I think, wrote The Road Not Taken. Yeah. Uh, He had a chapter called Love is Not a Feeling. And it was uh, the first time that anybody articulated it so clearly. You know, when you love somebody, it's not because they make you feel good. It's because you dedicate yourself to them. And,
0: And it's that dedication that actually makes you feel good. Right. They're not fulfilling your expectation of love. You're actually creating the experience of love within the relationship yourself, in a way.
1: You're creating it for yourself. And in yourself, in one of my podcasts, I talk about love and I say, you know, love will always bring you images and understanding of yourself. Like if you fall in love with bird watching and you dedicate yourself to bird watching, you will learn about yourself through the birds. You know, if you dedicate yourself to map making and you make a lot of maps, you love it. Eventually, you'll learn about yourself through the map making. I mean, it's kind of amazing what love does because love is this dedication in which we return again and again with interest to the beloved and we will be you know, engaged with the beloved because we want to be, not because, oh my God, I have to do this. I mean, again, when you're in a long-term relationship, you don't feel that kind of experience with your partner by any means 24-7, but it should come back again and again. You know, the, huh, oh, I'm learning about myself through this. Oh, I'm learning about the other person. This is interesting. I didn't know this before. Oh, this is being revealed now. So love does this incredible thing of allowing us to discern something about ourselves. But if we don't stick with loving over time, it won't do that. It'll just be a disappointment of our desires. It can be enraging. It can be also dispiriting because, again, if we're always in the same movie in which we're always disappointed or nobody gets us, that's very dispiriting over time. So I think the important thing about love on a two-way street is that the two people are learning together. And it's a lot like, you know, being in a community like the one you were in, in which you're discovering things. It's a, You know, each one of you is discovering a whole world in the other person, as well as discovering things about yourself. And so that's what I call true love. It's quite different from idealization. It's very different from romance. It's also different from an attachment bond.
0: I would like for you to talk about how this relational approach to mature dependence relates to our society and our collective experience in the world. You know, I'm thinking in terms of what's going on, in, particularly in this country, with the extreme level of projective identification and reactivity that's right. that's happening.
1: You're absolutely right. We have very destabilizing projective identification going on on every level in the public domain, you know, there's almost no civil discourse left. People have forgotten the rules of etiquette. There are just all sorts of things that are happening now where, you know, people just take a freedom to project what's going on with someone they've never met, and then call them out or call them names. And that evokes the rage from the other side. And then we get into a cycle of humiliation and rage. So the way that I think about best case scenario for what we want, best case scenario is that we are learning skills for being able to handle our conflicts and differences with respect and with this kind of equanimity and mindfulness so we can take that into the world. So You know, if I can do this love between equals with my partner, if I can do this with my adult children, that's more difficult than doing it with a stranger, because I don't have history with that stranger. And so I find I can use these skills so much more easily with strangers. You know, if I'm meeting somebody who has a very different point of view than I have, someone who has different values, politics, religion orientation towards anything, I can speak for myself, be interested in them, listen mindfully, be, you know, reflect back before I answer, did I get it? Is there more? I'm able to use these skills everywhere. Not that I always get through every conversation without fighting, that's not true. But I can behave myself and respect myself in doing a conflict unless I want to fight, and then I can fight if I want to. Sometimes I like to fight because I believe in something so strongly, but most of the time I don't. And I use the skills that I really practice in my everyday life with the people that I love. So I see the best case scenario is that what we're asking for is going to lead to greater skill on a larger level. The worst case scenario is that we're going to get a lot of thin-skinned people who break up all their relationships and don't know how to handle their own emotional lives. And we will have fragmented our family systems in such a problematic way because we wanted relationships that were based on our own feelings and on, you know, being seen and heard and known accurately, which means that, you know, The other person, if you're expecting that, the other person is not going to be able to do that without a lot of engagement. So at the point that you become disillusioned with the other person, if you just double down on them about how they don't know you, you're just going to go into one of your emotional complexes and you'll find them to be, you know, an enemy. So the worst case scenario about what we're doing is that we're increasing a lot of narcissism because everybody's got their own individual identity as the topmost value in their lives. And then the best case scenario is that we're creating a whole new way of handling conflict, of relating, and that there might be a new horizon out there in which humans don't have to make enemies, don't have to do war, in which we can talk instead, because we can become aware of our own awareness. We can become aware of how we're seeing and hearing and feeling things, and we can become interested in what the others are seeing and hearing and feeling, because we have those features. You know, we, we can do words, not war, but we haven't done that over time. Humans, homo sapiens, have been mostly at war, and that's because we mostly want to blame when we feel hurt, wounded, when we're afraid we mostly want to find somebody to blame and then make that person the enemy and of course we can do that especially with the people that we're close to so that's where I, I you know the best case scenario is this is going in a great direction for the future of humanity maybe it's not going fast enough but it is you know it could be going in that direction so the one last thing about cherishment so My late husband, Ed Epstein, he and I founded Dialogue Therapy, and I wrote my first book about it in 1984. It was called Hags and Heroes, A Feminist Approach to Jungian Psychotherapy with Couples. That was the title of it then. And then in 1993, I wrote the second book, which was You're Not What I Expected, Love After the Romance Has Ended. And then in 2019, I published Love Between Equals. Now, Ed was my best friend, and we were together for 30 years, but he developed early-onset Alzheimer's, and it started to become apparent when he was about 55. He died at the age of 66 from Alzheimer's. And I went through a long transformation with him where he could no longer witness me. I mean, he began to, of course, lose his capacity for short-term memory, sequencing and executive functioning, that's the first thing to go in early onset Alzheimer's. And he stopped being able to track me and be a witness. And, and that created a lot of difficult for me. I gradually, gradually recognized there was something really wrong. It, both of us took a long time to recognize that. And he was diagnosed when he was 59 through a holographic PET scan that established that most of his cortex was dead by then. So through that long period of time when he was declining and being kind of erased by Alzheimer's, I had to learn to cherish him. I had to learn how to do love on a one-way street. I needed to continue to really care for him, to devote myself to him in the ways that would allow me to feel my friendship with him. Even though he was becoming a child, a toddler, an infant, he could not reciprocate. So I learned that I could use these skills of love, these approaches of love. I had to take care of myself at the same time. And so before Ed died, I began to look for another relationship because I needed some partnership. I needed somebody to support me and to remember that I had a birthday or whatever, which was part of my cherishment of Ed to find a way to meet my own subjective needs while I was taking care of him. So I learned about love on a one-way street when your partner cannot reciprocate this equal, reciprocal kind of love. And, you know, one can still, I still, enjoy loving him, even though he could not reciprocate. But to do that, I also had to be a whole self myself. I had to care for myself. And I had to recognize that Ed's whole self was becoming a child, a toddler, an infant. He could no longer fulfill the person, Ed Epstein, that he had been. He couldn't do it. And so I had to recognize him for who he was. So as we cherish people that cannot reciprocate, we learn how to love on a one-way street. And we do that in psychotherapy. The therapist feels that way towards the patient. The therapist dedicates that kind of attention to the patient. The patient cannot reciprocate because the patient is not in a personal relationship with the therapist. We do that for sometimes our adult children who don't reciprocate our love because they become critics of us, but we continue to be interested in them. We do that sometimes for disabled people in our lives. We do that for our pets, you could say, because it's a love, a cherishment on a one-way street there. So the practice of love can be practiced on a one-way street, but it's not the same thing as true love. True love involves this vulnerability on both sides, where both people have got a high stake in being witnessed and being known and being cared for. And so true love has a lot more feeling of danger in it than cherishment. Uh, you know, love on a one-way street where you decide okay, my partner can't reciprocate, but I'll continue to take care of my partner, that doesn't feel as vulnerable as love on a two-way street. So I hope that's kind of clear, Tonio.
0: Yeah, it actually sounds in a way like a really good model for approaching a mutual love between equals. If you can do that with another person without expecting anything back, because that's often what hangs us up is, is we lose out on the expectation front.
1: Yeah. Well, you have to learn about your own snow globe. You know, it kind of comes back to that. You always have to work with your own subjectivity. You know, you could say, well, you always really are the person who is available to you the most to take care of you because you are around, you are in, you know, this particular embodiment. And so as you learn what you need and what your emotional habits are, what that deep emotional wounding is, you learn how to care for it. And so you learn how to be a whole self in the presence of another whole self. That other whole self may or may not be able to reciprocate as time goes on, or maybe even sometimes briefly, like people have illnesses that mean they cannot pay attention to the partner, but then they can recover from the illness. So you know there can be cherishment during that illness, but then some illnesses are not recoverable, and then there's ongoing, you know,
0: cherishment. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.
1: And it's really a pleasure to talk to you, too, because you get it. You truly get it. And, and so that's a pleasure.
0: So thank you, Tonio. And thank you. And be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Polly young Eisendrath. She's a couples therapist, author of Love Between Equals, and the creator of Real Dialogue, a skillful practice that uses a mindful approach to communication that lowers the sense of emotional threat that often arises in conflict situations, allowing us more spaciousness to work creatively with conflict and problems in our relationships, which is also a part of her dialogue therapy practice that she does with her couples' clients. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. That's soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.